0: If you would open your Bibles to the Book of Jonah, and if, as I heard from a few people this morning, you have no idea where Jonah is, I would uh, sing to you the books of the Old Testament, <laughs> which, because that's where I know where it is. Uh, so, if we start with the Minor, minor Prophets, you kind of flip to the middle, you find Isaiah, and then you go Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and so on and so forth. So uh, find Isaiah and turn to the right, find Matthew and turn to the left, and we'll be there before long. We're going to read the first three verses today. As we begin this study of the book of Jonah, we've got some introductory material to get through, so we'll only get through the first three verses and then we'll take off speed next week, planning on about five weeks in this four-chapter book. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, let's hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, I pray your blessing upon this time as we open up the word of the living God, which was breathed out by you, inspired of the Holy Spirit, preserved by the Spirit, For the people of God. For us today. This is your word for your church today. Because we like sheep are prone to wander. Prone to wander, Lord I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts. Above, That's the cry of many who are here today. It should be. We are, like Jonah, prone to wander away from the presence of the Lord. And undoubtedly, this series is going to strike some who are away from the presence of the Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that what would arise out of this series, what would arise out of this text... Is a vision of a God whose grace is unchained. Limitless. Boundless. Unrelenting in its pursuit of rebels. And that those who are away from the presence of the Lord. Would hear the winds of your grace howling after them. Saying come home. Come home. I pray that you would save sinners through this series. I pray that you would rescue rebels through this series. I pray that you would cause your people to cherish your free and sovereign grace. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see you in all of your splendor. And in all of your majesty, help us accomplish your purpose. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the one who is greater than Jonah. Amen. Well, the book of Jonah is undoubtedly the most familiar of the minor prophets, which are those small books, 12 or so, that you find at the very end of your Old Testament before we get to the New Testament and the Gospel of Matthew. Nearly everyone, anyone who has spent any time whatsoever in children's Sunday school or vacation Bible school has heard the story of Jonah and the whale, or Jonah and the big fish, which was it, we're not sure. But in my experience, precious few of us have actually studied the book of Jonah as adults, when the fascination with the fish sort of slips away and we're confronted with the actual meaning of the text. And when we do, we will quickly find that this short narrative, it's only 48 verses long, there are chapters in the Gospels which are longer than the book of Jonah. We'll find that the book is a powerful exploration of the grace of God. In other words, Jonah is not really about a whale, or a fish, or any other sea creature. It's not even really about Jonah. Rather, it is about a God who pursues, rescues, redeems, and saves sinners by His grace. See, the book of Jonah is about a God whose love perseveres with His people so as to overcome our rebellion and to turn our hearts back to Him. It's about a God whose mercy extends far beyond the borders of Israel and stretches to the very ends of the earth. It's about a God whose grace is so free, so unrestrained, so sovereign that He chooses to rescue the violent and wicked men of Nineveh and a cold, hard-hearted, self-righteous prophet from Israel. It's a God who rescues the lawless prodigal son and the legalistic older brother, the morally impeccable Nicodemus, and the morally suspect woman at the well. The book of Jonah is about the unrelenting, unyielding, and often uncomfortable grace of God. So over the next few weeks, we're going to turn our attention to this short book, which is buried deep in the recesses of the minor prophets, maybe buried deep in the recesses of your childhood memories, and we're going to seek to recover its message for the people of God, because this book, the book of Jonah, was written for the covenant people of God in order to teach us what our Lord is like, and my prayer is that this study will help us to know and to love and to worship God more deeply than ever before, preaching through a book of the Old Testament can be a very difficult task. and in, in general, we're far less familiar with the Old Testament than we are with the New Testament, It's removed from us by even more centuries of time and history. Therefore, the work of establishing the what we call the redemptive historical context, the history of God's dealings with. Man, in time and history is, is that much more difficult. So before we launch into the meaning of this book, we need to answer certain questions. We need to cover certain background issues. We need to have an introduction of sorts. Answering questions like, who is Jonah? Where in the course of history do these events occur? Where in the course of the Old Testament narrative can we place the book of Jonah and his prophetic ministry? Where does this book fit in the unfolding storyline of Scripture? Sometime between Moses and Jesus, we know but where. And what message does the author intend to convey to the people of God, to us, for whom it was written? And so before we actually get to your bulletins, before we actually get to the message for this morning, this is why we're only covering three verses today, We're going to explore three background issues that will help us to get a grasp of the book of Jonah in its historical context and understand the message of this book and therefore to discern what God has to say to us as people during the course of this study. So by way of introduction, let's let's look at three issues. Let's look at the history, the geography, and the theology of the book of Jonah. History, geography, and theology. All right, let's deal with history first. From the very outset of this study, I I think that I should probably tell you where my stance is on this book. I, I hold the book of Jonah to be a divinely inspired, completely, entirely accurate retelling of actual historical events, and this series will take that stance. Now why do I have to say that? Well, I have to say that because today most people don't think that. The prevailing view today is that the book of Jonah should be understood as something of a parable and not an account of historical events. And what this is, in my humble but most accurate opinion, is merely an attempt to to escape the supposed difficulty of a man being preserved alive for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. It's, It's hard to believe. But as Mark Dever points out in his book, The Message of the Old Testament, Jonah is very unlike a parable. It's too long, too detailed. It is written as if it were history. It contains specific cities with specific names and is set in a specific historical period. More importantly, most importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ himself considered it And treated the events of Jonah to be historical. Because he refers to them in Matthew 12, Luke 11. And it seems, to me at least, eminently unwise to take a lower view of Scripture than the Son of God did. Would you agree? In addition, I might suggest that if you have difficulty believing what we're about to read in the book of Jonah, what we're about to study in in these chapters... If you have difficulty believing the account of Jonah because of the alleged impossibility of its claims, then I would ask you, how will you not stumble over the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity? His virgin birth, his atoning death for sinners, his bodily resurrection on the third day, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and his return to judge the living and the dead. If we can't accept that God can preserve his his prophet alive in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, how will you believe any of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith? The fact of the matter is that the Bible does not shy away from declaring that God is well able and sometimes willing to reach into time and history and to suspend the laws of nature in order to declare his power and to accomplish his sovereign purpose. So we're going to assume in this study that the events are historical, that they actually took place, and that they took place in the manner in which the author describes them. So assuming that the book of Jonah is historical, what do we need to know about the context in order to rightly divide the word of truth? Well, I think we need to know who Jonah was, when Jonah lived, and what transpired in Jonah's day. Now, there's a very important clue that's provided for us in the first line of this book, the narrative opens with these words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now the fact that Jonah's father's name is given allows us to establish Jonah's identity in the time frame of his prophetic ministry because that phrase, Jonah, the son of Amittai, more specifically, the prophet Jonah, the son of Amittai, occurs another place in the Bible. It occurs in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. Where we read this, Jeroboam, that is Jeroboam II, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Goth hefer From this verse we know that Jonah was a prophet of God, who ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II of Israel. And that reign, we know, took place somewhere between 782 and 753 B.C. So we know Jonah is ministering. The events of the book take place somewhere in that 8th century B.C., sometime between 782 and 753. We also know that Jonah was from and perhaps still dwelt in a small town in Galilee. Interesting, isn't it? He's a prophet from Galilee. We'll get to that later. A small town in Galilee known as Gath-Hefer, which was a town in a territory allotted to the tribe of Zebulun, one of the northernmost tribes of Israel. So he's a prophet in and around 760 B.C., up in the northernmost reaches of the northern kingdom of Israel. This information allows us to paint a portrait of the time period in which Jonah ministered, this time period of Israelite history. See, the, the kingdom of Israel was divided in 931 B.C., just after the death of Solomon. You can read about it in 1 Kings. The tribes of Benjamin and Judah and some of the priests of Levi remained in the southern kingdom of Judah with its government located in Jerusalem and its worship at the temple of God there in Jerusalem. And the ten northern tribes became the kingdom of Israel with its government located in the city of Samaria. And during its 200-year history or so, the northern kingdom of Israel remained chronically unfaithful to the covenant with the Lord that he had established with them. They were an unfaithful people, by and large. The southern kingdom fared much better, even though even they fell into idolatry and sin and eventually were sent into exile. But the northern kingdom was flawed from the very start. Israel was, by and large, a wicked and idolatrous kingdom, ruled by a series of wicked and idolatrous Kings, But in the kindness of the Lord and for the sake of the fathers, God sent to this northern kingdom of Israel a series of prophets in order to call them back to repentance. There was Elijah, and then there was Elisha, and then there was Elisha's successor, a prophet by the name of Jonah. During its history, Israel was assaulted by two Foreign kingdoms, one directly to the north and the other one to the north and the east. The one to the north was the kingdom of Syria, with its capital in Damascus. Your Bible also refers to them as the kingdom of Aram, the Arameans. The Syrians won significant victories over Israel, taking from them a large portion of their northern lands. But it was during the reign of Jehoash, the king of Israel, that the Lord promised, through the prophet Elisha, that they would have victory over the Syrians. And then Jonah, Elisha's successor, promised the son of Jehoash, a king named Jeroboam II, that he would have continued success over the Syrians, including the restoration of all of Israel's former borders. It was also during this time that the other kingdom, the Assyrians, with their capital in Nineveh, were beginning to rise to power. And then for a period after they had risen to power, they experienced a weakening during which Israel had little trouble with them. They had a history of trouble. Trouble was soon to come again. In fact, it was the Assyrians who would obliterate the northern kingdom and cause them to cease to exist in 722 BC, just about 40 years after the events of Jonah. But at this time, they were kind of in a a weakened state. So we kind of take all of this history together and here's what we've got. Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel sometime around 760 B.C. And he was a contemporary of the prophets Hosea and Amos. Alright, so that's the history. You want more than that, I would just send you back to read 2 Kings. So let's talk about geography. Why is the geography of Jonah important? Well, because there's three locations that will help us get a really good grasp on the message of the book. First, when Jonah received the word from the Lord, he went down to Joppa. Now, Joppa was a seaport on the western coast of Israel, and it corresponds to modern-day Jaffa, which is a part of Tel Aviv, one of the oldest existing seaports in the world. And the ship which Jonah boarded there was owned and operated by Phoenician sailors. The Phoenicians were expert sailors. They were responsible for most of the sea traffic on the Mediterranean Sea in the ancient world. So you got Joppa. If you're looking at a map in your back, you'll see Joppa right on the western coast of Israel. From Joppa, Jonah intended to sail to Tarshish. Well, where in the world is Tarshish? Not Tarsus, Tarshish. Tarshish is on the southwestern coast of Spain, way on the other end of the Mediterranean Sea. 2,000 miles due west of Joppa. It was literally the end of the world in ancient days. Nobody sailed on out into the Atlantic. They they, they, they sailed around the coast of Spain, but, but they never went out. You see what Jonah's doing? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and he flees so far from the presence of the Lord, he can't flee anymore. He's going all the way to Tarshish. That way. God told him to go 500 miles that way to Nineveh. Jonah says, no, I'm going to go 2,000 miles that way till I can't go anymore. It's a very vivid description of rebellion. Jonah's not just rebelling. He's rebelling with a capital R. Finally, God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh, as I said, was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, located 500 miles north northeast of Israel. It's located on the eastern bank of the Tigris River in modern-day Mosul. You've heard of that a lot in the news today. In fact, at the site of ancient Nineveh, modern-day Mosul, there was a a, uh, site called the Tomb of Jonah, now, Jonah probably wasn't actually buried there, but there's a tomb of Jonah, which just this last week, as I was studying for this message, was blown up by ISIS. Ceases to exist. Nineveh was an ancient city, it was founded uh, at least as far back as 4500 BC, and it was the capital of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were known in Scripture for their wickedness and their violence. And indeed, in Jonah 1-2, the Lord commanded Jonah to go and cry against Nona, or Nineveh. rather. And you see it says, for their wickedness has come up before me. Its wickedness has come up before me. There was another time that God used that kind of language, and it was re- with reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Wicked people. And ancient archaeology, modern archaeology of these ancient ruins confirms this assessment. One Assyrian king by the name of Ashurbanipal, was known to tear off the lips and the hands of his victims. Another king, Tiglath-Pileser, was known to flay his victims alive and make great piles of their skulls. Nineveh is called an exceedingly great city because of its massive size and population. Jonah 3.3 states that Nineveh was a three days walk in width. Jonah 4.11 says that even in the ancient world it had 120,000 people living in it. History tells us that Nineveh was a fortified city with walls surrounding it. Walls that were 100 feet high and were wide enough that you could drive a chariot around its circumference. The city was large enough that it had fields for cattle and gardens within the walls of the city. Massive. So considering the size of the city and the wickedness and the violence of the Ninevites... It's easy to see why the command to go and cry against Nineveh was no small order, nor why Jonah might have balked at it. So finally, understanding the history and the geography, let's get to the theology of the book of Jonah, theological setting. The book of Jonah is, is right in the middle of the old covenant, that era of redemptive history in which God is proclaiming his gospel of redemption by means of types and shadows of the law and of the temple that point and find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. So here's what we're getting at. You can't read the book of Jonah as if it were merely a fun fish story. Or, or, as if it was one of Aesop's fables that was, was intended merely to give us a moral lesson, like don't disobey God. Rather, this book is intended first and foremost to teach us about another Galilean prophet who would come eight centuries later, one far greater than Jonah. See, on the road to Emmaus, you remember this from Luke 24? Jesus encounters two disciples who are walking all glumly because uh, the one they thought was the Messiah has been crucified in Jerusalem. And he comes up upon them as they're returning to Emmaus. And Luke records this in Luke twenty-four twenty-seven. Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So Jesus is talking to them about the prophecies of the Messiah, and he's dealing with all of the prophets, including the prophet Jonah. So this tells me that we need to interpret the book of Jonah through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of Jesus. And in the case of Jonah, it's not a terribly difficult task because Jesus himself points us to where he is in the book of Jonah. When he's speaking to the unbelieving peoples in the regions of Galilee during the days of his earthly ministry, he says this in Matthew 12, verse 39. He says, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. One commentator, Brian Estelle, he puts it well when he says this, Jonah, first and foremost, plain and simple, has this most important message for the Christian church today. Christ, the risen one who is greater than Jonah, Brings salvation through judgment and mercy to his people, those inside and those outside of Israel who call on his name. What is foreshadowed and illustrated in Jonah becomes reality in Christ. End quote. So, my prayer is that God would grant us, through this brief five week exploration of the book of Jonah, a new vision of a big, Sovereign God whose boundless grace will break through every barrier and triumph over every obstacle to accomplish the salvation of those he has chosen to save. Ultimately, in sending his own son to save his people by descending to the grave in judgment and rising again on the third day to proclaim salvation among the nations. What Jonah did, Jesus is going to do in greater and more ultimate ways. And my prayer is that we would see it. So that by the end of these five weeks, we would be able to join with the prophet in his proclamation, his exclamation that's found in chapter 2 and verse 9 after he's been rescued, where he simply throws up his hands and he says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the message of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And is accomplished through one greater than Jonah, who descended and spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth to rise again and proclaim salvation to the nations. That's the book. So with this introduction, what I want to do, I want to cover the first three verses, kind of wet our our taste, wet our appetite for what's going to come as we look at this book of God's grace together. And we're going to see how God's grace initially interacts with Jonah because we'll see a lot of parallels for how his grace interacts with us today. So let's look at the first three verses together. The book opens with a word from the Lord to his prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Alright, so the word, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Arise, go to Nineveh, go to the, the very heart of the wicked, violent Assyrian Empire, and proclaim a message of impending destruction upon the city. So God sent Jonah to Nineveh with a message of judgment. We know this not just because uh, uh, in Jonah 1-2 the Lord told Jonah to go and cry against Nineveh, but because after the fish incident in Jonah 3... The word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah, told him to go to Nineveh to proclaim the proclamation I'm going to tell you. And then chapter 3 and verse 4 says, Jonah went to Nineveh, began walking throughout the city and proclaiming this message. Here's the message that God gave Jonah to give to Nineveh. Yet 40 days and you're all going to die. This is my paraphrase. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. God commanded Jonah to preach a message, message of judgment, and Jonah, eventually at least, went to Nineveh and proclaimed a message of judgment. And this was, this was, after all, one of the primary functions of the prophets, to proclaim the judgment of the Lord upon the wickedness of men. It's a very normal prophetic duty. shouldn't have surprised Jonah. So why did Jonah flee? You know the Ninevites... The enemies of Israel, the wicked and the violent city, I want you to go and tell them that I'm going to judge them. Seems to me like Jonah would be applauding. Why does he flee? Well, the obvious answer, I think, is fear. Nineveh was an incredibly wicked and violent city, and the Lord commanded Jonah to go with a wildly unpopular message. This is how it would be received. Okay, the prophet of Israel comes into the midst of the city of Nineveh. Everybody's kind of looking at this guy as he walks in, sneering at him. And, and, and he begins to shout this throughout the streets. The God of Israel, whom you neither acknowledge nor fear, is sending judgment upon you in a matter of 40 days. If I were Jonah, I'm quite sure that I would be knocking at the knees at the mere thought of proclaiming such a message. Nineveh, whom the prophet Nahum would later describe in this way, the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage, her prey never departs, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, the countless dead bodies, that's Nahum's description of Nineveh. So so if I'm Jonah and I hear the word of the Lord saying, go and cry against a message of judgment, I'm going to overflow Nineveh, and I know this about Nineveh, I would have said, you want me to go where? And say, what? But the fascinating twist of the story is that Jonah tells us why he didn't want to go. And it was not fear. It wasn't fear that caused him to to flee to Tarshish. There's no indication in the text, wouldn't blame him if he was, but there's no indication in the text that preaching destruction to the city of Nineveh caused him to quake with such fear that he turned and and tucked tail and and, and sailed to Tarshish. No, the prophet himself tells the Lord in chapter 4 why I didn't want to go. Why I didn't at first obey your commandment. Look in chapter 4. After Jonah went, and after Jonah preached, and after Nineveh repented in sackcloth and ashes, and after the Lord relented of the calamity that he had declared upon them, we read this. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Do you hear the snot-nosed whininess in his voice? I knew you would do this. I knew it, I told you, when I, was in, when I was in Israel, I knew you would do this. You told me, go proclaim judgment, but I know you, and this is just like you. I knew that I would go there, and I would proclaim your message, and you, you, you would send the Holy Spirit down upon them, and they would repent, and you wouldn't do it. And that's why I left. It wasn't fear that caused Jonah to flee. Rather, it was that Jonah was repulsed at the thought of a God who would save the Ninevites. He was repulsed at the thought of God extending his grace to the Assyrians. See, Jonah knew the heart of God. He'd read the Old Testament. He knew. That's just a quotation from Exodus 34, repeated again repeatedly in the Psalms. He knew that God was gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and one who relents from calamity. And Jonah suspected that the message of destruction that God had given him, the message of judgment, was really a message of grace. Intended to bring the wicked Ninevites to repentance. And Jonah did not want the Ninevites to repent. And Jonah did not want grace for Nineveh. He wanted judgment and and destruction to fall upon their guilty heads and their bloody hands because that's what they deserve. And so instead of heading 500 miles that way, he heads 2,000 miles that way. Or at least he tries to. He doesn't make it very far. Does this all sound kind of familiar to you? Like from last week? Does Jonah not sound remarkably like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son? This is because Jonah operates by the very same merit based self-righteous attitude a self-righteousness that says it's okay for God to have mercy and grace for me just not for them it's okay for God to bring salvation and forgiveness to me but not for them it's okay for God to bless me after all why wouldn't he I mean look at me but not them they're they're so wicked And one of the messages of Jonah to us, his church, is that we ought to flee from that attitude as fast and as far as we can. We need to make war on this self-righteousness because it will cause us to do what Jonah did, namely to despise the grace of God. And that's a very dangerous place to be. See, see Jesus reserved his harshest comments for Pharisees like Jonah, for older brothers like Jonah. If God had destroyed Nineveh, Jonah would have cheered, but Jonah would rather abandon the Lord than to be the instrument of his grace. And that's that's the cry of the Pharisee, of the legalist, and it's a fundamental denial of, of the doctrine of total depravity, which is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. It goes hand in hand with the other doctrines of grace. Total depravity says that all mankind, without exception, Whether Israelite or Ninevite, whether church member or godless pagan, all men are dead in trespasses and sins. All of us have a heart that is bent towards hostility and rebellion against God. All of us stand condemned underneath God's judgment. All of us are children of wrath unless or until God rescues us by his grace. All of us. But Jonah did not know or did not acknowledge or did not remember this truth. He didn't see himself as one who was hope, hopelessly dependent upon the grace of God. No, he was an Israelite. He was righteous. He was a prophet, for crying out loud. He did not realize that if he take away the grace that he would receive, he would be no different than the men of Nineveh. In fact, throughout much of their sordid history, the kingdom of Israel was little different than the kingdom of Assyria. In spite of the unsurpassed privileges and blessings that God had poured out upon them. So you mark this down this morning. Unless I remember my own depravity unless I remember that I have no righteousness or merit before God, that the only reason, and I mean that exactly as I say it, the only reason why I stand forgiven and saved before God is as a direct result of His free and sovereign grace. And unless I remember that, I will tend to be repulsed by His grace towards sinners that I view to be more wicked than myself. Just like Jonah was, just like the older brother. You cannot cherish God's grace. And oh, that we would be a church that cherishes God's grace. But you can't do it while holding on to your own righteousness at the same time. Until you come to grips with your own sin, you will always be uncomfortable with the kind of people God's willing to say. But holding fast to the doctrines of grace, including total depravity of man, will guard this church, it will guard your heart from falling prey to self-righteousness. We need to be a church that acknowledges our sin and cherishes God's grace. Second, because Jonah was repulsed by God's grace, he rebelled against God's grace. Verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. All right, it's at this point that the geography comes in, right? God told him to go 500 miles to the northeast. Jonah doesn't like the command, so he goes 2,000 miles to west, the very edge of the earth. There is literally nowhere Jonah could have sought to go that would be further away from Nineveh and the outpouring of grace that he did not want to happen. Jonah was fleeing, but from whom? Find the answer twice there in verse 3. He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. That's important, beloved. Jonah wanted nothing to do with a God who would have mercy upon wicked and violent Assyrians. And he tried his hardest to get away from the Lord's presence. He left Israel aboard a ship staffed completely with a pagan crew, headed for a territory so remote that it is probable that the name of Yahweh had never even been heard out there, hoping anything to get away from this God. But the desire to get away from God is a foolish endeavor. Where can I go from your spirit, David asks. Where can I flee from your presence if i ascend into heaven you are there if i make my bed in sheol behold you are there if i take the wings of the dawn if i dwell in the remotest part of the sea even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me fleeing from the presence of the lord is a fool's errand and just goes to show us that sin will make us be do and be utterly irrational And don't miss the finality of of Jonah's rebellion. There is no indication that this is a, a round trip. That Jonah has any intention of returning to Israel and resuming his prophetic ministry. I think the clear suggestion of the text is that Jonah is forsaking his home, his people, his country, his calling, and his God if this God's going to save Assyrians. Jonah would rather commit apostasy than worship a God who would have grace for the enemies of Israel. What kind of God is this? If he is willing to save people like that, I'm through. And before you cast stones at Jonah... I would warn you to examine your own heart that you don't say the very same thing. Finally, in verse 4, we begin to see Jonah being rescued by God's grace. I don't want to end today with rebellion. We'll cover verse 4 next week with the following section, but I want to close this morning by pointing out those first few words. But the Lord. But the Lord. Jehovah. My Bible, the New American Standard, doesn't put the conjunction in there, but it's there. It ought to be there. English Standard, I think the NIV, the King James, it has it, and good for them. But the Lord. Verse 3 should begin with those words. Or verse 3 begins with the words, but Jonah, right? Jonah was repulsed by God's grace. Jonah rebelled against God's grace. But verse 4 begins the next section. And and what immediately confronts us is, is grace. But the Lord would not let Jonah stay in his state of repulsion. But the Lord would not let Jonah stay in his state of rebellion. Think about what the Lord could have and should have done. He he could have let Jonah go to Tarshish. He he could have let Jonah make a new life for himself at the end of the world. He could have let Jonah continue in in his rebellion against God's command. Jonah was so desperate to escape God's presence that the Lord could have allowed him just to escape and to die in his sins and to spend an eternity getting exactly what he wanted, which is to be away from the presence of the Lord. That's what I would have done. But the Lord overtook Jonah, captured Jonah, and rescued Jonah. Verse verse 3 ends in in darkness with the prophet down deep in in the hull of the ship, sound asleep in the slumber of his sin. But in verse 4, the wind begins to howl and the sea begins to churn. Why? The Lord is coming. In spite of Jonah's sin, in spite of Jonah's rebellion, the Lord is coming for his own. He is not coming to kill. He's not coming to destroy. He is coming to save Jonah by himself, from himself, for himself. And the message of Jonah that we ought to get out of this morning is that's what sovereign grace does. Our God is a God who pursues rebels, who overtakes rebels, and who rescues rebels from their own rebel heart, bringing them back for himself. Beloved, this this is what God has done for you if you are in faith this morning. Your story is the same in many respects as Jonah's. And this is what I want you to see. It, it matters not whether you were converted at a, at, a, at a young age, the tender age of nine or whatever, or, or whether you were converted as an adult who had been hardened by years of sin. It doesn't matter. It, it matters not whether you were engaged in, in open rebellion, spurning the word of the Lord, fleeing into the far country of sin, or whether you had never really left the father's home. It matters not whether you are the older brother or the prodigal son, Nicodemus the Pharisee or or the woman at the well. Understood against the backdrop of total depravity, the grace that saved us is every bit as ferocious and every bit as unrelenting and every bit as effectual as the grace that chased down Jonah with a massive storm. So I want you to see yourself in the person of Jonah this morning, and I want us to tremble in gratitude and worship, because he came for you. You you were running away, whether running away like a nine-year-old, or running away like a 29-year-old, or running away like a 59-year-old, you were born in a state of running, and he came for you. In the midst of your rebellion, he came for you. When you were dead in your sin, he came to you. This is what he does for every one of his own. He comes, he overpowers us with His grace, and he brings us to himself. If you remember this, beloved, you will not fall prey to self-righteousness. Remember this, and the fire of your worship will not grow cold and dim. And so I invite you to remember this this morning and worship. Because you were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked after the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit. Now at work in the sons of disobedience among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our sins. He made us alive. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. And seated us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show to us his tremendous grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. And that not of yourselves. By grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. At the very center of that glorious passage passage are those two words that shine through the entirety of Scripture but God and that's the two words I want to leave you with this morning our God and our Father I pray that you would help us to worship you this morning with the remembrance of the truth that but the Lord rescued us We were chasing down sin, but the Lord pursued us. We were wandering away from Him into the far country, but the Lord came after us. May those words, but God, ring in our hearts and in our minds today and cause our worship to well up. That's my prayer for these people. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.